0: Okay, good evening, everyone, and thank you all for joining us. Before uh, we get into the thrust of our program tonight, I just want to note this evening's session will conclude a week-long Shavua Tone of thought and inspiration on the topic of Jewish identity. And all of our sessions have been dedicated by Esther and Craig Gutman in memory of Shimon Berglas, Shimon and Berglas, as well as by Alan and Risa Litwack in memory of Mo and Rose Litwack, Akrona Lebracha. Moshe ben Ya'akov and Racha about Meir Halivi Sarhanam Racha. We think about Jewish identity. We normally contemplate the question of what Jewishness is and what being Jewish means to us. However, while we identify as Jews, it's important to acknowledge that there are other elements to the way we see ourselves, including our unique family backgrounds, our ethnicity, and the unique traditions that come along with them. Over the past few weeks, we have read about Avraham Avinu. In Bereshit, Parak Yedzayim, um, Pasuk He, Hashem changed Avram's name to Avraham because Av Hamon Gayim to reflect the notion that Hashem had appointed Avraham as a father of a multitude of nations. Based on this notion, the Rambam writes in a letter that all Jews, regardless of their ethnicity, whether they were born Jewish or not, are equally children of Avraham Avinu. We are all his spiritual descendants. And we all take on his mission of inspiring all the nations of the world to call out B'Shem Hashem in the name of God, each in their own unique voice. Tonight we have the opportunity to hear the three voices of members of the Jewish community who have unique ethnic backgrounds and unique stories to share. Our hope in conducting this dis- this discussion with them is that as a community, we learn from their experiences and and gain insight into how we can be more welcoming and inclusive to all children of Abraham Avinu. On that note, I'd like to mention that tonight, we will be listening to our panelists and hearing what they have to say. In that vein, I will be muting everyone in the audience, aside from myself and our three panelists. If you do have a question, please message me privately in the chat and I will see if I can include it in our discussion. Now to introduce, without further ado, our three panelists. And before I introduce them, I just want to thank all of them for volunteering your time and for volunteering to open up on such difficult and compelling issues. Firstly, I'll introduce Rabbi by Dr. Ezra Frazier, who uh, hopefully you can see. Right, Dr. Ezra Frazier is a veteran educator currently teaching at Heschel High School in New York. Right, Frazier studied at Yeshiva Haaretzion and Yeshiva University. He holds a B in computer science, an MS in secondary education, smicha, and a PhD. That's a lot of education. I gotta give you credit, Ezra Frazier. I can never stay in school for that long. Um, In Bible, all from YU. He was also ordained the chief Rabbi of Israel. He recently graduated Air Force officer training school and serves as a chaplain the US Air Force Reserve, a man of all trades. By Fraser's ancestors include Moroccan and Eastern European Jews, as well as African Americans and Native Americans, a lifelong resident of Teaneck, New Jersey. He lives there with his wife and three daughters. So that is by Fraser, and we're looking forward to hearing from you. Additionally, we have the privilege of hearing from Yujide Omotoso. Yujide is a university student at York studying political science. Yajide lives here in Toronto and is a member of the Shari Shemayan community. Yizideh was born in Edmonton and is a proud of her Trini Nigerian heritage. And finally, we have Yitzhak Ben-Kohelet, also a member of our community. Yitzhak ben Kohele grew up in Toronto in a non-religious yet very open household. After a period of searching, Yitzhak decided to learn more about Judaism and became observant. In his desire to contribute to society, Yitzhak decided to dedicate his life towards social services He currently lives in Toronto, works as a coordinator for a food bank, and is pursuing a degree in social work. Yitzchak hopes to specialize in trauma counseling. Yitzchak's father's family originates from East Africa on the Horn of Africa, mainly from a county called, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, Djibouti. Was that good, Yitzchak? Hope so. Anyways, again, thank you all so much for your participation. It's certainly not an easy thing to open up about one's personal experiences. And we are all very appreciated that you have agreed to do so and you have taken your time to do so. So now that we have introduced our wonderful panelists, I'm going to begin our series of questions Um, and I hope to give each panelist five minutes to respond to each question. Our first question is more introductory and it is as follows. Can you please tell us about your experience in the Jewish community and how your ethnicity specifically affected that experience. And we'll begin with Rabbi Frazier.
1: Thank you very much, Rabbi Bergman. It really is a pleasure to be here. I visited Canada a couple of times in Montreal, as well as the West Coast in Vancouver. i have never been to Toronto in person, but at least now I get to visit Toronto on Zoom. Uh, my background in many ways is what you'd consider a typical modern Orthodox background. I grew up in TNAC where I still live today. Went to you know, modern Orthodox day schools for elementary school and high school. As Rabbi Bergman mentioned, I went to a Yeshiva in Israel, which is sort of a standard religious Zionist yeshiva. Has there Haratzion, and then you know, I was at YU for many years. And you can tell just from seeing me in terms of my own skin color, I don't particularly stand out either. It happens to be that my father is a convert of sort of mixed racial background. Primarily grew up identifying as African-American. And so I grew up sort of in this vibrant modern Orthodox Jewish community, looking just like everybody else, but being aware that I had a non-Jewish sounding last name and that I had this whole background that people who knew me knew about. But if you didn't know me, you wouldn't have any reason to think that I had any sort of a different background than anyone else. And from time to time, among my friends, let's say in elementary school or high school, I really enjoyed the fact that I thought they had this sort of exotic background that not everybody else had. At some point in middle school, we had this class project where each kid had to come in and talk about their family background. And it was usually how their family came to America. My classmates were mostly Ashkenazic. So almost every kid was, you know, my family is from either Poland or Russia or Germany or one or two other places in Europe. And either right before the Holocaust or as a result of the Holocaust, my grandparents came here and now here I am. And for me, it's like, well, actually that's my mom who you know, was born Jewish, is half Sephardic, half Ashkenazic. So that itself was exotic that I had a Moroccan grandmother. And then on my dad's side, that was even more exotic that you know, I had these different ethnic groups and racial groups that I was descended from. And a lot of my friends thought it was cool. It was only sort of occasionally from time to time that I'd realized this actually made me different in a meaningful way. One example that stands out is again in middle school, I believe it was eighth grade, we were learning about the civil rights movement and they showed us this very powerful movie, Mississippi Burning, that deals with some of the struggle for civil rights. And, you know, we saw this movie, we had some lessons in class around the same time about key dates, And I'm just sort of sitting there doing the math and realizing, well, if my dad was born in the middle of the 1940s, and if segregation persisted until the 1960s, and my dad grew up in the South, that must mean he grew up under segregation and probably couldn't go to the schools white people went to. And so I came home and I asked him about it, and my dad in general didn't love to talk about what was obviously a very challenging and painful part of his life, but he said, yeah, it's true. I grew up going to you know segregated Negro schools until you know, at a certain age, a certain part of his childhood, his family moved to Illinois. But until then, yeah, he grew up under segregation. And here and there, there were times we spoke a little bit about how when he was sort of in his early 20s during the Civil Rights Movement, he went back to the South to try to help volunteer with a movement of registering Black voters. There were other times here and there where, you know, you'd hear in the news something about, uh, racial profiling and how that impacted the black community. And I've never been racially profiled by the police myself because I don't look any different than most other white people that I know. But I do know that I have a first cousin, you know, my dad's nephew, who has been profiled like that. And so it felt a little more personal to me than it maybe it felt to other people in the community. And so as we approach that tonight's topic, I think, you know, my experience is sort of one step removed from what some of the other presenters have. I don't have the experience of personally suffering from having people look at me in a way that implies I don't look like I belong in the Jewish community. But here and there, there'd be these moments that I think we'll talk about more as the program continues, where there'd be this little bit of sensitivity that maybe I have because of my awareness of my own background that other people might not even appreciate that I experience. And I think in this context of a saying that rabbis have, where they say that you're not supposed to... Say anything potentially hurtful about a convert's family's ancestry, even for ten generations, even several generations after the person who converted, you could still have someone who's aware that his family came from a certain background. If you say something that could potentially uh, rub someone the wrong way about that background, this person could really be hurt by it. And so, you know, that's again my experience, where ostensibly I grew up, quote unquote, normal except that I had this background that in a way was cool and exotic, but also could make me somewhat more sensitive to things in ways that people would not realize.
0: Okay, thank you so
1: much Fasier, for sharing. Fascinating.
0: Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about your experiences in the Jewish community and how your ethnicity and your background has affected that experience.
2: So thanks for having me. I'm glad I could uh, contribute in some way to this panel. Um, so like Rabbi Bergman said in my introduction, um, I'm from Toronto. Um, my father's from East Africa. Uh, his, his family's originally from East Africa in a country called Djibouti. Got it correctly. Um, and uh, my mother's actually, her family's from um, the British Isles and uh, of non-Jewish descent. So I have a very interesting uh, uh, Experience growing up, kind of not really uh, seeing myself really straddled between different worlds because uh, actually, growing up in Toronto and especially the regions of Toronto I grew up in, in the suburbs of Toronto, were very diverse in and of themselves. So it wasn't so much of an issue, um, including all the Jews uh, that I grew up with. Uh, even though a lot of them, most of them were all um, non observant, they're from Moroccan backgrounds, a lot of immigrants straight from Iran, from Russia, from um, South Africa. So uh the Jewish community, though non observant, was diverse in of itself. So I had friends from everywhere, so I fit in pretty nicely. And um uh even going to uh like events on like Hanukkah or something at the Reform synagogue or going we lived in obviously the Jewish neighborhood, so we would always go to like the kosher markets to buy everything. It was very much fine there's no real big issues um, I remember growing up like the slightest things that my mother would get irritated with was people would make comments because my mother obviously doesn't look very much like me at all um, people would make comments like um, oh is he adopted or even like small jokes like maybe the stork made a mix-up or something like that so like there was like slight things and I noticed my mother would get annoyed and I didn't really pick up on them growing up because it wasn't so blatant until later on. I kind of, uh, internalized why it was such like a, a big deal for her, those, uh, comments because of, um, obviously like I'm her son and regardless of the way I look, I'm still part of her blood. So, um, I think it wasn't until really, um, later on long, uh, later on in life growing up, um, that I started to become connected to uh, Judaism, specifically um, uh, a moment where I picked up a book in a bookstore, um, I was looking for some things and it by happen chance, if you will, I found a book by the Rambam, didn't know who he was at the time, but I read it and I automatically kind of fell in love. And um, since then I've been uh, on a, a beautiful journey, trying to find myself within the Jewish community, um, trying to find myself, um, uh, and just by myself in general. And so um, it wasn't really until I became religious that I really had uh, kind of was really affronted with my identity of itself. Because um, I think if everybody really notices that um, in uh, Toronto, and I've been blessed to be able to live in uh, Jewish communities in the, throughout the world, um, they're all pretty much divided up based off of um, specific cultural backgrounds. You go to a specific synagogue because... That new Sacha is based off work from a very particular country. And so the people who go there are usually pretty much from the very same, uh, exact same background. So uh, be, being newly religious and trying to find yourself and not having an, act, an actual representation of your background somewhere, it was very difficult for me. So I spent a lot of time moving around and I was very blessed to uh, uh, experience a multitude of different Jewish communities. And it wasn't really until I realized. Um, how uh, beautiful it is uh, where I am currently living in Toronto because it was having uh, multiple experiences in uh, different communities that weren't so uh, used to having different faces around. I really understood that um, me being observant and me being visibly African might cause issues. So like the most, nothing major, but I mean, like the most uh, impactful moments I would say would be uh, things like, maybe not being uh, so welcomed into communities or even more blatantly I'd have uh, um, uh, comments made to me like questions made to you. Are, are you black? or Are you Jewish? So um, my, ethnicity and my navigating in the Jewish community has really kind of led me to explore and um, really open my eyes to a lot of white things in a plethora of communities but it also has made me really come to terms and um, really come to face that I do have a unique identity and I do have something unique to offer and it's just not to myself but people do view me differently so um, it is almost a blessing and a curse that um, becoming religious has uh, awoken within me that I do have a very unique and specific perspective in life so um, hope that's a good introduction so far
0: fascinating and very meaningful thank you so much for sharing okay and Yujide, if you don't mind for just a few minutes sharing a bit about your experience the Jewish community and how your ethnicity has affected that experience
3: okay yeah so um, I'm Yujide and I'm a university student from Alberta and actually just moved to Toronto this year so I'm pretty new to the Jewish community in Toronto and like a lot of the experiences I have to share are from Alberta but there are also um, many things that happen here and I'm also part of the I've been part of the conservative and orthodox communities um So just a second, sorry. Not bad. Okay. Um, yeah, so yeah, so coming to Toronto, I actually find the community here a bit more welcoming. And so the best experiences I've had so far, um in places where I come in and people assume that they automatically assume that I'm Jewish just like everyone else. Um, and a lot of other black women I know would share the same views where like um the best possible experiences they can have are just being treated as an equal and not being questioned about their identity. I think, um, that's the biggest thing. If, if you can take any lesson from here, it's just, um, maybe not to ask too many questions and to treat everyone as an equal and not, not to make too many, um, types of interrogations unless they want to reach out and tell you. And so I've had many positive experiences like that, but. I've also had a few negative experiences coming um, to certain schools, so um there have been times where I did get kicked out and for example um what one of the reasons were that like a certain synagogue didn't want non jews um praying there, but they didn't even bother to ask and they didn't know me and this This has happened on several occasions, and with corona, it can get um a little bit worse because um because security can be used as a bit of an excuse. Um, But yeah, there there are a variety of different experiences that there are to talk about. And this isn't always the case, but um, a lot of it is just about um, prejudice and yeah.
0: Thank you, and I know that's not easy to share, but we really appreciate it. Um, On that note, um, for our next question, um, so we're looking to grow here, looking to improve. We're looking to make things better and, and learn how we can do that. And the Torah warns, uh, I'm going to mention a positive commandment that we have a negative one. On the one hand, we have an, a commandment of Havata Ger, a commandment to love. Ger can be translated as convert, but can also be translated as a stranger. And although there is a mitzvah to love all people and all Jews, the Torah specifically commands us to show an extra degree of love toward people we may not know and who may look different. And similarly, there is a prohibition against onna'at devarim, a prohibition against verbally using our words to hurt people's feelings and make them feel uncomfortable. So on that note, I know you've spoken to these experiences already, but my two questions which go together are, number one, Um, What challenges have you or your friends and family encountered when visiting new communities? And how can we fulfill this notion of loving a stranger better? And similarly, what phrases or conversations have you had that have rubbed you the wrong way or made you feel uncomfortable or hurt your feelings? And what types of words and, and can we be more careful about not sharing when we speak to people who may look different? And we'll start with Yijide, um first. Yujide, if you don't mind speaking to those two questions.
3: Yeah, so to answer your first question about um, certain comments that people can make, like you'll have a wide range of comments that may be a bit inappropriate. So you can have something from go back to your country, you don't belong in the synagogue, get out, and things as small as, you know, is your mother Jewish, uh, where are you from? it just gets a bit annoying. But I think the most important thing is that if someone is witnessing something like that happen, they should speak out and say something because it can really push people away. And I do know many Black women because of um, those small comments that they get on a day-to-day basis. They they have told me that they don't want to come back to school, which is really unfortunate. And because diversity and multiculturalism is always a good thing, and it could all be can always help um, other people um, be more accepted. at sure. Um, another thing I'd like to bring up is uh, the the presence of security in synagogues. So when visit when when a newcomer visits a new synagogue, it can actually be a bit stressful because of the security presence there. And it's ironic because security exists to make people feel safe. However, a lot of people of color and people may look a bit deviant than what we normally see um, actually feel more unsafe because of the security there it means that every time you visit a new temple you you will get interrogated if you have a big you're likely to have your big church um they will ask inappropriate questions and so i think that one of the ways we can um make certain places more welcoming is to maybe train staff and security not to see Um, people of color as a threat, but um, to use the same protocols as you do with um, any other stranger that might be coming in, even if they blend in with the group. And this isn't just something that's happened after COVID. It's been happening um, for quite a while, especially with the current political climate becomes necessary. But um, I think it's also important to be um, a bit more conscious of the way the way you deal with people and make sure that you're treating everyone equally who's coming in. So yeah, that's um, my piece of advice. Um, thank
0: you so much for sharing Ajude. Um, I just want to point out that I think something day has said is that there are certain things that people might say totally innocently without recognizing that they're offensive and or security personnel might be trying to do their job and they, without even realizing it, they're, they're being insensitive and they're saying things that make people feel very uncomfortable. I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'd like to turn to Yitzchak next. Yitzchak, again, if you don't mind, sharing number one, how we can be more welcoming and making sure that everyone who comes into our communities feels loved and welcomed, even if they look different. And also what types of phrases and conversations should we avoid Um, to avoid making people feel uncomfortable.
3: Yeah. Okay. Great. So, um,
2: actually, (coughs) sorry, I um, second, a lot of things that you just commented on. Um, I think just to follow up quickly, I mean, the commenting on, um, uh, even security, even just, um, kind of this idea of being wary of outsiders. I have many times I've um, actually instructed um, friends of mine who are Jewish, but um, are of much darker complexion with longer beards um, and um, aren't so observant. So when they put on a kippah, it might look a bit, a little bit different to outsiders. I've actually instructed them to wait for me to um, actually invite them in because I know there might be some issues. And even I've actually had um, uh, female relatives that actually when they came into the synagogue, um, to come to the uh, kiddush uh, later on, they've actually been instructed to go to the back because they were they were assumed to be um, staff, wait staff. and so um, experiences like that I think is not I don't think um, indicative of uh, any particular community or security service. It just relates to having to educate that. Um, there is kind of like a wider uh, view of what a Jew is. And even the Jewish members of those communities who are part of the security staff have to be kind of more open that there can be outsiders coming to communities that might look different and still be part of your community. Um, so I think that's really important. But um, I think from personal experience, um, I think I, like I commented on my introduction, the like kind of the most harshest um, um, Uh, issues I've had and the most standoff issues I've had have been um, thankfully outside of this community and outside of this country of Canada. um, Mainly in comments, something as like I said as harsh as people asking me kind of innocently enough, but it's still very much hurtful. Like, are you Black? Are you Jewish? Or they'll ask me, how are you religious? Or why are you religious? Without any pre-notion of like, hey, welcome to our community. What's your name? You're new here. Um, So, even if it's like simple questions where uh, somebody's innocently enough wanting to ask like, um, Hey, you look different. Um, I want to get to know you better. The best way to go about it might not be being like, Hey, where are you from? Uh, even as earnest it is, it might be like, Hey, what's your name? Um, welcome to our community. Or even if you've been in community, if I've been in the community for a while, it's been like I've seen you a while around and, um, I like to get to know you better. It seems very simple, but you'd be surprised that a lot of people kind of forget about that because they see something different and they think it's okay. And it's very earnest and I get it, but it, um, it's a, oftentimes people don't think about it. They think it's um, uh, it's kind of like, an obviously because I think it's because I am different. I must have something about me that uh, uh, I kind of always have to ask uh, answer for. That's what that kind of only uh, seems like sometimes. So it can be a lot, a very exhausting how these questions uh, happen, especially if you're in a synagogue with hundreds of people and you're getting it constantly. Uh, it kind of makes going to a, a synagogue in Shabbat a little bit not so inviting. Um, even though these are the most heartfelt and warm questions, it is the fact that these questions do have a time and place, and sometimes a person is just a person, and um, they don't want to get into their deepest details about their background uh, to the uh, person that they just met. So, um I think one of the best things we can do is that when you see somebody different in your community, is welcome them, and you don't have to get into a big conversation. You don't have to bring them to your Shabbat table, but you could at least say hi, welcome, what's your name? And that's it, and it uh, doesn't have to go any further from there. If you want to know, get to know more about them, maybe take that over the course of time and don't immediately try to get their whole uh, family history and their reason for their religiosity in that um, short period of time just because they look different than you. Because that usually doesn't happen if somebody who was from the same community but wasn't a regular member and wasn't religious, they usually doesn't, don't, wouldn't get the same rundown purely based off appearance. So um, I hope that's uh, a nice rundown of that.
0: Thank you. That was very meaningful. And I think um, sort of this notion that sometimes the smallest things make a huge difference. Sometimes simply saying, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. Shabbat shalom. Without asking anything else, just saying hi goes a really, really long way. So thank you for sharing. And finally, um, for this question, I want to turn to Rabbi Fraser. If you can please, Rabbi Fraser, share any recommendations you have, again, on how we can be more welcoming and make sure everybody who comes into our communities feels comfortable and fulfill this notion of ahavat agar, and also how we can be more careful to avoid the trap of okay
1: thank you very much so like i mentioned before i feel a little bit one step removed from what was described by the other panelists I have not had the experience of being profiled by security because I do look just like everyone or almost everyone else in my community. But from time to time, there'd be these moments where despite being one step removed, someone would say something or ask something about my background in a way that implied something that maybe they did not mean in in sort a nasty or offensive way. But if you think about how it would sound to me, that's how it's going to sound. For example, I am pretty open about the fact that my father's a convert. I don't think that's anything to hide or be embarrassed. So sometimes if it comes up in conversation with someone who does not know me particularly well, they'll say, oh, well, when did he convert? Before or after he met your mom? And the implication is, if he converted after he met your mom, then he probably only converted to marry her and so he's probably not a very sincere convert. It happens to be he converted long before he met her. He's pretty committed to his Judaism. He's completed multiple dafyomi cycles. But just hearing someone say that and realizing the implication is that every convert is suspected of potentially not converting sincerely. And so even if in fact, like my dad meets the cut of being sincere, but the default assumption is that converts are not sincere, you know, it always rubbed me their own way. and why I felt bad for people who say it because I feel like part of the implication is they think so little of their own Jewish observance, they can't imagine why anybody would want to convert except to marry someone. And it's too bad they think that. But it's also hurtful that people who often have, you know, made unbelievable changes in their lives as adults to embrace a lifestyle of Torah and Mitzvot are constantly being questioned for, like, why they did that. Here and there, other comments have been made that were totally innocent, but could still be a little bit hurtful. When I was in first grade, my first grade teacher had us make Rosh Hashanah cards for our grandmothers. So I raised my hand and say, well, what happens if your grandmother's not Jewish? So the first grade teacher assumes what I mean is my grandmother's not Orthodox and says, you know, it's a terrible thing to say, we're all Jews. And like, she was trying to teach me to be open-minded towards non-observant Jews, but it never dawned on her that my grandmother just isn't Jewish. And I just wanted to know, like, what type of a card should I make if my grandmother's not Jewish? So, you know, she sp- said to the principal afterwards, apparently, I just wanted to make sure I said the right thing. I assume his grandmother's a non-observant Jew, right? And the principal's like, no, his grandmother's not Jewish. And so I think she felt bad afterwards. But, you know, I think there's a lesson there that you don't assume just because someone has the same physical appearance as you that they can't have a different background than you. Here and there, you know, I hear, overhear comments, people would say that would sort of imply on the one hand, they find the story of this or that convert to be very inspiring, but with a bit of a not in my own backyard kind of implication. Like, I think that person's really amazing, but I wouldn't want them to, you know, marry into my family. Like, I'm not that impressed or, you know, I still don't think they're exactly just like the rest of us after they converted. And I think the hardest part, which I don't want to imply this happens all the time, it doesn't, but when it happens, it's something I can find very upsetting, is, you know, the small number of people within our community, and I hope it's a small number, who are comfortable saying outright racist things, but would know to never say them in front of someone who looks Black, because you wouldn't do that, well, because I don't look that way, So people like that will have no filter around me. And so here and there, hearing people, you know, make comments, even use a word like, you know, schwarze that I think we should expunge from our vocabulary. And whoever's saying it won't even realize why that would rub me the wrong way, because they don't know my background and they can't tell from looking at me. And so, you know, I don't think racist comments should be made, even if there is no one in the room with an African American or black background, but you shouldn't also assume there's no one like that in the room just because no one looks that way to you on the positive side to conclude, I will say you know, along with that unfortunate reality that sometimes we do find people within our community making racist comments, the first Jews my father met in many cases were Jews whom he met through his civil rights activities, you know Jews who were involved in the civil rights movement, and so and ever since he you know, did convert and join the Jewish community in TNAC, he's been very much embraced by our shul. You know, he loves the community and people there love him. And so, you know, I think what I mentioned a second ago is something you have to be concerned about, but I don't mean to imply that that characterizes our community. I think most people in our community really are wonderful people who want to be welcoming to people of all types and backgrounds.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. I'm um, very appreciative of everything that all of you are sharing. And I think you've already provided a lot to think about in terms of how we can improve the way that we interact with others. Um, so our next question I'd like to ask is a toughie. Um, and but I think it's important as a faith community to consider how we should think of our own faith and our own teachings and how they may affect others. So the question is as follows. There are certain verses from Tanakh and statements by the sages, by Chazal, that can be understood as insensitive to people of color. I'm not going to give any examples of those. I don't think it's the context for that. But let's say that there there are some that could be understood that way. Um, How would you respond to those Jewish sources? What do you feel like when you hear something like that? what, what would you suggest that people who are discussing such sources or sokim or statements from the rabbis, how would you suggest they approach those statements? And for this one, I'd like to begin from Yitzchak.
3: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So <laughs> it's
2: definitely a biggie, but, um, um, I'm privileged enough to have many chachamim, and uh, many of them are from a variety of different idot, a variety of different communities throughout the world. And um, actually, a large percentage of them are actually much darker than I am. So when I presented this concept to them, um, trying to get some wisdom out of it, they pretty much said there's two ways of approaching this. Um, you can either there's two rational ways of approaching it. At least you can either compartmentalize it and say you know, the hachamim, they were living in their era and they had their views of their era and that's just the way things were back then. And we just kind of leave it like that and we just kind of move along. And that's perfectly fine and it's legit and it's perfectly uh, a rational way of viewing things. Um, Another way is actually looking at the text and um, saying that, well, maybe what they're saying isn't correct and it doesn't mean that they're incorrect, but maybe there's something about what they have and the wisdom that they had was um, kind of uh, missing or lacking. And there's something that we could add on to it. And I think that that's part of the, the beauty of our Masora. The beauty of our living tradition is the fact that we're able to look at our text, our text critically in our in our we can enter into a living dialogue with them that like, makes what our tradition such a beautiful thing that even if there's things we disagree with we don't just throw it away we look at it we engage with it we we dissect it we we take what we know today and what we've learned through over the years and we go back and we enter in a living dialogue with with our sages so when we come across i think these hard things especially uh, things that would affect uh, one person it could be anything um it could be about color, it could be about sex, it could be about uh, gender, it could be about uh, race, it could be about your religious status. Um, when you come across these hard texts, I think it's, um, it's one thing to uh, appreciate the Masora and say, okay, that's the way it is, and I'm just kind of going to move along, but I think there's something... Uh, beautiful in an engaging with it in a meaningful way. And, um, I think we do in fact stand on the shoulders of giants. And I think what that means is that we have to learn from what, uh, they can teach us. And we also have to learn from maybe their shortcomings and their mistakes that we can, um, build upon it and build them a sword to a much, uh, greater, greater, um, um, tool and a greater, um, method of viewing the world, uh, for the future. And it's not just static, um, system that we have to uh, adhere to blindly. So I think when it comes to these hard uh, texts, I think it's uh, actually a beautiful thing to engage with and it's a beautiful opportunity to really uh, uh, test um, the, the limits of our abilities to uh, engage with our Masora and the the, the breadth of our Chachamim and the wide variety of these texts. Because um, even though there might be some harsh words against, uh, against uh, people of a certain um, sector, our people are so wide that we have Chachimim of the exact same um, sector is preaching beautiful things. So there's always this balance and there's always this uh, dichotomy that we can just uh, learn from if we just engage with the text honestly and um, critically and not just brush it away from as it's something from the past.
0: So much for sharing. I just, I'm really in awe of how, um, you know, you can look at a topic like that, which really might be very hard, and still be able to look at it so rationally and thoroughly, um, and 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 look to gain from it. And I think, you know, as we all think about what's going on tonight and all the questions and answers, I think we can all learn from that. That there are certain issues that we might think one way about, but we can, if you, if you look more deeply and carefully and thoroughly, um, we, there's so much to learn from all sorts of texts and traditions and people, for that matter. Okay, I'd like to now ask Rabbi Fraser, again, the uh, question was, how would you deal with statements from the sages or sukim even in Tanakh that
1: seem to be insensitive to people of color? Thank you very much. I think this is certainly a very important topic to discuss, and thank you to Yitzchak for your insights to it. I think now's the point to mention in terms of my own biography that, as Rabbi Bergman mentioned earlier, I currently work in a pluralistic school, which means most of my students who I'm studying Tanakh and Gemara with are coming from all kinds of different levels of observance, different cultural backgrounds. And for most of them, these ancient texts can potentially feel very foreign. And if we broaden the question a bit, it's not just about how there are statements that could rub someone the wrong way because of race, but statements about women that assume women are not as well educated, statements that assume things about entire groups of non Jews. And one of the things I often do to somewhat diffuse that is at the outset, when we're about to read a text, I'll say, listen, I just want to acknowledge, you know, in this class, half the students here are female. This text is going to contain language that assumes certain certain things about the different genders. This text was written 1,500 years ago. Let's just keep that in mind. And let's try to see how, despite the fact that this text was written 1,500 years ago, and therefore might make certain assumptions that are different than the assumptions we have today about that particular issue, let's say in that case, example that I gave, you know, the assumption that women aren't well-educated or women don't work outside the home. Let's see what messages and meaning we can find within this text that still could speak to us today, still could be meaningful for us today. And I think if you don't do that, you wind up going to one of two extremes, both of which are problematic. one extreme is to say, look, it was written so long ago, the assumptions were so different, I probably can't learn anything. I may as well dismiss them as you know primitive ancient people. And I think if we do that, we lose out on so much wisdom. I think we'd be fooling ourselves to think that the only people we can ever learn anything from are people who live in a society just like ours, with the same exact cultural assumptions as you know 21st century Western countries. And then anyone who lived before a few decades ago, or is alive today, but in other parts of the world. Would have nothing to offer us, and so you know, I think that would be a terrible mistake. I also think it would be a mistake to say, Well, look, we're religious, pious Jews, these holy, holy rabbis said X, Y, and Z, and so therefore it must be like a literal, absolute truth that's true in all times and places. And here, you know, you talk, spoke about consulting Chachamim, you always want to, you know, speak with scholars who have enough of a breath of knowledge they can get a sense of where within a text are you dealing with some basic principle that's core to Jewish belief. And when are you dealing with the rabbis, maybe giving a mashal, a parable, or an allegory based on the reality that they know. And often they'll want to explain how to relate to God and they'll give some parable that's meant to make it relevant to our lives, talking about a king doing X, Y, and Z thing. And we, we live in democratic countries where our leaders can't do that, But we understand that they lived in a time where a king could do that. And through that language, they're trying to teach us something. And if we accept that, we can then understand the lesson they're trying to teach us about God. And I think, you know, to give one example, I don't want to get too much into the details either. But the story in which Miriam and Aaron are slandering Moshe and speaking about Moshe's marriage, some of the interpretations of that, are sort of racially charged in these assumptions of what it is that they were saying about Moshe's wife and where she came from. The overall message of that story is all about the importance of not slandering other people and purity of speech. So obviously the rabbis who are writing these commentaries to teach us that lesson would never deliberately engage in hurtful speech in the very text in which they're trying to teach us why you should not engage in hurtful speech. And so clearly they said what they said because in their time and place it wasn't perceived as being offensive in the same way. And so when we go about this, I think we'd be losing out if we just said, oh, we're gonna you know, censor Rashi or censor the Talmud and like cut those pieces out. But when we read them, I think it is important to acknowledge how they can sound. You know, when I was in yeshiva and I'm sure the other rabbis here can relate to this, you're reading whatever page of the Talmud you're reading you don't even think about what it would sound like to someone outside of your yeshiva setting to hear the case you're discussing. It might be a case involving something being you know, done to a slave and the fact that in that piece of Talmud it's assumed that slavery is a part of life. It might be some other thing like that. Just be aware if you're in a broader community setting that there may be someone to whom that particular line about the ethnic or racial origin of Moshe's wife could sound hurtful and to acknowledge that. You can still study the text, but acknowledge how that might sound to someone and say, we have to keep in mind, like, the rabbis who wrote this lived, depending on which commentary, you know, 500 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and we're still going to understand what they're trying to teach us. But that doesn't mean that we should repeat that same comment verbatim in our own speech today and pretend that we're being wonderful, kind-hearted people emulating the rabbis. When if they were around today, they probably wouldn't have phrased it in that way Thank you very much. That was very astute and scholarly and
0: I think sort of what you're speaking to and it's like speaking to also is this notion that of gaining from ancient texts and ancient traditions is part of who we are, and I think that's sort of what we're doing now, you know just sort of building on our perspective on 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 these issues and finally again um. For this question involving hurtful statements or potentially hurtful statements about race from Tanakh or from the sages, I want to turn to Yujide to address how she would recommend reacting to such statements and teachings.
3: Okay, well, I think a lot of um, the important things were covered here, but I. uh... I think the main point is that we should always um address something when it's there and not just skim over it and ignore it and gloss over the issue because if you address it, then you're making sure that your students aren't feeling alienated and that people of color want to return to your class um because for a lot of people uh torah study can be a sort of spiritual escape from the day to day discrimination that they face, and so Um, when teachers address that in the Beit midrash in the study hall, it makes it, it makes it a space that's a lot more welcoming. And um, it's kind of a, like, um, yeah, it's kind of a safe space for people of color in a way.
0: Thank you. Okay. So we're now up to our final question and uh, it's also a difficult one, but I guess that's why we're here to deal with. Difficult issues. So, um, unfortunately, for various reasons, racism has been in the news pretty frequently recently. And the Torah, the Torah has a command of of ridding the evil from in our midst. And actually, the Talmud says that if a court sees something evil happening in their presence, although normally there are certain procedural rules they have to follow to prosecute anyone, it happens right in front of them. They can do something about it to stop it. And so my question is, how would you recommend when we hear about something racist or um, a racist crime or racist statement in the news, in the greater world, or something that happens in our community, how would you recommend responding I'd also like to add that often people don't know exactly what to do, or often we hear something happen and we don't know, like we're we're offended, but how should we react? And so if you have any practical, um, you know, solutions or steps you can take specifically given, you know, taking into account how, from your experience, you react when something like that happens. Um, So I'd like to start with Rabbi Frazier.
1: Thank you very much again. I'm going to focus specifically within the Jewish community. And I want to share something that happened in my community in know, It feels like yesterday. It was the last time I was in a particular synagogue in my community in a large gathering, you know, pre-COVID. So I guess that means it's probably around February of last year. And the rabbi in this particular synagogue had decided, you know, months earlier that every few weeks he would have some event during the winter Friday night, especially when Shabbat starts early, so there's time to come out to an event after dinner, talking about different social challenges within our community. And one week, the topic he chose was racism within our community. And first of all, just the fact that he held that conversation sends a valuable message to those people in the community who are concerned about the phenomenon that the rabbi and the leadership of the synagogue think this is something worth having an event about. In that sense, you know, you've fulfilled that by having this event tonight. But then at the event, you know, the rabbi mentioned something that I thought was very important to mention. And like I mentioned earlier, it always rubs me the wrong way you hear someone use the word Schwarze, because that essentially means we have like our own racial slur unique to our community that we use to speak in a racist way about people who look different. And he essentially said, look, he doesn't speak that way anyway in his sermons, but as a goal for the community to create a culture where no one would ever feel comfortable getting up in front of the synagogue speaking that way. And that could involve some discomfort, that could mean if you have someone from outside your community visiting who, in a cavalier way, says something like that, you know, in that case, it might be, you know, the rabbi or leader who would be the one to speak up, raising their hand and saying, excuse me, we don't use that word here, that's not how we talk in our community. And as a private citizen, maybe if you're not part of your synagogue's leadership, you wouldn't necessarily feel comfort comfortable. In show, being the you know back sitting in the back, you know, standing up and calling that out. But the same applies to other contexts. Maybe it's a, a Shabbat meal where you're with few other families and someone makes a comment like that, and you have to use judgment. Sometimes you know directly calling something out can be hard, but you know, giving someone a bit of a dirty look, sort of move the awkwardness away from the people who are offended by the language, feeling really uncomfortable towards creating a culture where the person who uses that kind of language feels a bit uncomfortable because they feel they're being looked at as having spoken inappropriately. And just sort of shifting our culture in that direction a little bit more where people just don't feel it's okay to use language that could be seen as racially insensitive within our community, because people know that our community doesn't tolerate that. I think you know that that's something small in some ways, it doesn't sound like as grand as going out to a protest or joining an activist movement, but it can be hard because it's often your own friends and neighbors that you're giving these dirty looks to, or you're saying to them, like, excuse me, I don't like having that language used around me. But if you can take that step, if we do that collectively, we can create a culture that will feel that much more welcoming to all kinds of people.
0: Thank you so much, Rabbi Fraser. And the next I'd like to turn to Yujide, and again the issue we're addressing is how you would recommend responding to racist racist incidences whether they're in our community or in the broader public.
1: Um,
3: So I like to deal with the part of the question that's more about um, the big things that we see on the news and in the media and oftentimes people don't know how to react to um, cases of oppression that are seen, in, um, they they don't want to do anything too grand and too risky. But there are many small things that you can do within the community um, and in the small interactions, and that doesn't involve needing to even support something big or the other. Um, and I think like one of the like one of the best things that you can do for a group that's oppressed is. Um, just to listen to them. So having that support and knowing that you're heard is um, one of the best things that a marginalized group can have. Um, they they don't, um, just knowing that there's a community to support them. Um, uh, another thing I'd like to add is um, that a lot of these experiences can be personal and they shouldn't always be turned um, into a sort of debate. So everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but it, it's important to listen to people who are um, more experts of their own experience. Um, so it comes back to just listening before you speak. It's one of the most helpful things that you can do for um, a certain group of people. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. And finally, um, with our final answer to this, our last question, I'd like to turn to Yitzchak to, again, give us any insight or guidance you have on how you would recommend responding to a racist incident in or in the broader community.
3: Wow. So those are some beautiful answers, Baruch Hashem. Um,
2: I think that um, it's important to note that it is frustrating, but I think it's imp- really, really important to remember that if somebody does feel frustrated when they do see these things and they don't know how to act, I think that's a, a beautiful first step. Um, I think that if you empathize and feel the, the, the plight of somebody else who you're completely disconnected to outside the fact that uh, you recognize that they're human and you're human and um Suffering, pain, and struggles—universal. I think that's extremely important, and you shouldn't let that go. Um, I think uh, to relate it back, we have a, a fundamental teaching in our Torah right at the beginning that uh, all of humanity, everybody's selam elohim, made in the divine image. So I think if you do see injustice against an individual, it would be an ex- should be an existential crisis. It should be a crisis of faith. It should affect every Jew. Um, it's, and specifically, I think it shouldn't go without saying that it doesn't matter where you're from in the world. It doesn't matter what your community, where your eidot, uh, what your nusach is. Um, everybody has a, a family or part of a, a part of a community that, in at least a generation removed, where has been faced with a, a marginalization, oppression um, at the hands of the state or at the hands of individuals. Um, blatant racism, anti-Semitism, discrimination. So when you see these things manifest in other marginalized communities, it, it should make sense and it's rational that we would want to do something and change it because it should feel like it should hit home because if it happens to one minority group, there's no reason why it couldn't happen to us. And it has happened to us. So we should be at the forefront of uh, stopping these things. Now, how you go about doing that aren't necessarily these, I don't think necessarily these grand thing, gestures of protests or you have to go into poverty by donating all your uh, your um, possessions to help fund a cause, but I think it's something like simple as what we're doing now is opening dialogue, and like what was said before is um, when there is a, a serious situation that you are affected by, is um, actually listening and engaging in um, what people who are affected have to say, and um, even if you feel far removed, I think what um, I think the point of this discussion today has to say is that um, uh, as being part of the Jewish people, we're part of a, a massively diverse, uh, um, um, it's beautiful that uh, we span every single continent, m- multiple languages, and we all are united as one people. So if even if we find, we see something in the news that we don't think we're affected by because it's happening far off in the world or it's being affected by a certain people group, I can guarantee that that issue is being affected by some Jews somewhere. So I think that when these uh, issues do come up, um, it's, it doesn't have to be as complicated as wanting to change the world, but it can be as something as uh, simple and fundamental as changing yourself and changing the way you view things, opening your eyes, engaging in dialogue, um, uh, engaging in acts of justice, uh, be it through speech, be it through charity, and especially through your actions and your everyday occurrences with uh, the people around you. We are uh, supposed to be an Oral of am, and I think we can really do it. So,
0: yeah. Thank you so, so much. Um, I Just before we sort of close, I want to again really thank Yitzchak and Rabbi Fraser and Yujide for opening up to us, for sharing your thoughts. Um, I found this so incredibly meaningful and profound and I am sure everyone else did as well. Um, And I just think this very fact that we can sit together and really confront very difficult issues and in a constructive way to inspire us to be better is such a Kiddush Hashem and may we continue to be mechadeh shem shemayim to sanctify the name of heaven and continue to be mechayim, all these mitzvot we have of making everybody feel welcome and um, feel proud of who they are in our communities. Um, it is about one hour, so I just want to end by just mentioning it again. By the way, I, I didn't think I introduced myself tonight. My name is Rabbi Sammy Bergman from Beit Midrash, Sifr Rondov. This is the last part of our week-long Ton on Jewish thought and inspiration. I found it very meaningful and inspiring. Thank you, all of us, for joining and taking your time. Thank you, By it, for and Shari Shamayim um, for joining us in making this happen. Um, and thank you all so much for joining. Um, it, is, it is about nine o'clock. Um, if the panelists are willing to, and, and people have a question or two, you can put it chat to me and, and um I guess we could see if anybody wants to address it. Um but otherwise I wanna thank you everyone for coming, Shabbat Shalom, and have a wonderful night.